This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 13th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. This morning's scripture reading is Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there are dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said they were filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is God's word. So we are in Acts chapter 2, going straight through the book of Acts, and we will be in that all summer. We are in, and I don't mean in Acts, but I mean in life, in the middle, really maybe a little past the middle, of what we call the story of God, God's story. It's a story that was written before creation ever existed. It is a story that is told while creation is fallen and broken. And it is a story that will conclude after creation is restored. And it's the best story ever told, and it's a story not about us. We are not the main characters in the story. It's a story about God, by God, and for God. And simply, it is the story of the one true holy God endeavoring to love His people who are quite unholy. And it's really not, in fact, a story It's actually a record of truth rooted in history that explains our world. And the historical record that we call the Gospel of Luke really provides us the climax of God's huge story that began before the world was ever created, 
And that climax centers on the hero of the story, the main character of the story, and that is Jesus. And it tells us the life and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus. And then the sequel that we are in, the book of Acts, records what happens after the climax. And because I'm an English teacher, you can think of that nice story arc that goes up to the climax and then comes down. We are, if you will, at the beginning of the end of God's story. Acts marks the beginning of the end. And we are in the end. We are in what is called the last days of God's story And the truth is, if you look at the ends of the story, the book ends, the beginning and the end, you'll see the story ends and begins the exact same way. And by that, I mean it it ends and it begins with God dwelling with His people in His creation. Now, God's presence first dwelt in the garden. He walked in the garden and fellowshiped with His two kids, Adam and Eve, And then we see, because of the fall, things changed, and we see God's presence show up in different ways and in different places. We see His presence dwell in a fiery bush. We see His presence cover a mountain. We see His presence take the form of a fiery pillar and a cloud to lead His people. And then eventually we see God's presence fully dwell in this portable tabernacle they have until He comes to dwell in a permanent temple. In all these times, at different ways, there's a separation of some kind. That man is not really fully in the presence of God. And even when you have the temple and the tabernacle, only special men, in a special way, at special times during the year, were able to approach the presence of a holy God. And then eventually, all these things pointed to, because it's all one story, the presence of God arrived in a person, Jesus Christ. And He walked among us and He showed us what God was fully like, revealing God in His fullness. And then through His death and through His resurrection, Jesus literally and spiritually tore down the barrier that had separated us from the presence of God and it made it possible for us to be in the presence of God in a way that mankind was not able to be since the garden. And so the book of Luke, the historical record of Luke that is the prequel to where we're at in Acts, is really the story of God with us and the arrival of Jesus. And then the book of Acts is in many ways the story of God in us with the arrival of the Holy Spirit that we center on this morning. Now the disciples have been waiting, as we talked about, for probably about a week. And the truth is, because we are talking about this larger story, not just this little story, this little chapter in the story, this larger story, all of creation has been waiting for what happens in the book of Acts for thousands of years. Never, ever, 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 ever read this chapter in the book of Acts and dismiss it as, well, that's the time when they first spoke in tongues. It's kind of weird. Let's move on to other Christian things. Never dismiss it as, this is the the birth of the church. That's when the church was birthed. Something much bigger is actually happening here. 
This is actually one of the most important chapters in God's story, not only because it starts to tell us what God does by His Spirit in the witnesses as He transforms who they are, but as we see it unfold throughout the entire book of Acts, we see it's what God is beginning to do through His witnesses by His Spirit that brings us all who call upon the name of the Lord here this morning. Now, the events of Acts chapter 2 occur on this day called the Day of Pentecost. And maybe perhaps you're really familiar with the Day of Pentecost. I'm going to assume that you are not. We often read the Bible and, and we don't understand much of what the Jews at the time, the people who are experiencing this would have understood because we have no familiar with the Old Testament, no familiar with Jewish culture, no familiarity with what's going on. So, oh, Day of Pentecost, what's that? Let me explain. The day of Pentecost is the Greek name for a festival known in the Old Testament called the Feast of Weeks. And the word Pentecost means 50th or 50, and it describes the 50 days, or is marked by the 50 days that elapsed since the first Sunday after the first Sabbath after Passover. Follow that? So we know if you think of Passover, the celebration, the Exodus, where they're feasting, commemorating the Exodus from Egypt, this the meal that Jesus ate with his disciples that all Jews would eat annually together. So 50 days from the Sunday following that Passover meal is called the Day of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. Now, according to the Old Testament, that first Sunday... And then, 50 days past that, that first Sunday was called the Day of First Fruits. So the Day of First Fruits, followed by 50 days later, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Those are synonymous. And the First Fruits, that Sunday, was, was the commemoration of the first kind of wheat sheave or harvest that was presented. And we use that phrase a lot in Christian culture and rightly so, about first fruits, bringing your first fruits to God. And so bringing your first fruits means you brought the first portion of the harvest and you gave it to the Lord. And by giving God the first fruits, God's people acknowledged that all good things come from God, that everything belongs to God, that they are dependent upon God, they're trusting in God's provision according to God's ways. And it's very much, you know, as we bring our children before the Lord, right? We are thanking God for the gift that He has given us, and we are dedicating back to Him what is His, and trusting that we are going to endeavor to honor Him as we raise our children, but recognizing that they are really His kids, and expressing our dependence and gratitude toward Him. Now, historically, that day of first fruits, right, that first Sunday after Passover, was a special Sunday in the Christian church. Because on that day of first fruits, a special event happened that's foundational to all Christianity. And that special thing was resurrection of Jesus. So on the first Sunday, which the Jews celebrated as the day of first fruits, was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And this begins to make sense as you read some of the things that Paul says about first fruits. Right? If you just read first fruits in the Bible and Paul is like, first fruits, you're like, sure, the first fruits, okay, but as a Jew, a really you know, educated Hebrew, he has deeper meaning here. And so he says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he is explained what the gospel is, and then he's defending the resurrection. About the resurrection, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all may be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Christ is called the first fruits of this great harvest that is going to come. Those who die with Adam are made alive in Christ through faith, ultimately resurrected to live eternally with Jesus. And so the Feast of Weeks, which follows this first fruits day, marked this harvest that would come. And it was the, follow this, the seventh Sunday from that day, or seven weeks, or 49 days plus one for the harvest. And just so you know, next Sunday, May 20th, is the festival or celebration of Pentecost according to the Jewish calendar. So we're really close, right? That would have been rad if we were like one more week. I'm not that good at planning, but I was close. But it's still commemorated, still celebrated. So then you start to go, okay, so why did Luke have to say like, well, Jesus taught them for 40 days. Oh, wait a second. Now things are starting to make sense with Pentecost and when Jesus rose from the dead. And so for 40 days, oh, now I understand why you said that for probably about a week or so, give or take, they were waiting in Jerusalem because it's 50 days from the time Jesus rose from the dead. And during that time, Jesus taught them some things. Right? So the whole context, first of all, of this passage is harvest. First fruits and harvest. And then we remind, okay, what did Jesus during those 40 days as the harvest is getting gathered, so to speak, what is he teaching them about? What is he doing? And Luke 24 tells us. Luke 24 says, Jesus speaking to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, the Old Testament. And so he spent all that time teaching them how he was on every page of the Bible in the Old Testament. And then he opened their mind to understand the Old Testament. And how this all pointed to him, how it was all foundational for him, how you had to read all things through the lens of Jesus, including the Old Testament. Now, what's troubling so much is that we don't do that very often, and yet Peter starts his sermons and his teaching all quoting the Old Testament over and over and over again. And one of the most popular pastors in America recently, like within the last week, I won't say who it was, 
But he recently said something that is troubling. He said, Christians must unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. You go, huh. And there's lots of additional explanation as to why he might want to say that or why he did say that. But I would argue that I'm going to stick with Jesus. And Jesus seemed to believe that the Old Testament was essential to understanding our faith. And so, technically, if we want to be technical and a little superficial maybe, we know that Peter doesn't really proclaim or preach the gospel explicitly until the back half of this chapter. But I'm going to argue that this entire experience, if you understand the Old Testament, is a proclamation of the gospel. And in the most glorious way. But I don't know if we ever look at it that way. And so I want to help us go, we just put an Old Testament lens on in order to see what the Jews actually would have seen and how they would have understand the kind of harvest and what God was doing. Because they have all this background. They have all this Old Testament that they are just living and breathing, have learned since they were little kids. And so when things start to happen, they go, oh, yeah. Let me make three connections for you and then bring them all together and hopefully not screw it up. First connection, if you have your Bibles, you can turn back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11. And you may be familiar with this passage. Genesis 11 is a... Uh, story that's familiar to young and old. It's about the Tower of Babel. And if you don't know, after Noah uh, exited from the ark, right, he was saved through the flood. He was in the ark for over a year. He got out and God basically gave him and repeated really the creation mandate, the cultural mandate that he'd given to Adam and Eve to say, look, go build God-glorifying culture throughout the world. Be fruitful, multiply. And so we read into Genesis chapter 11, and time has passed a little bit, but instead of scattering, we see that God's people have actually gathered. They've gathered in a place called the Plains of Shinar. This is the future location of Babylon. And they're led by a man literally named Nimrod. Now, when you think of Nimrod, you notice that no one was up here dedicating their child Nimrod. Because <laughs> if they did, you'd be like, dude, that's like cruel, right? Like, how could you name your child? Because Nimrod n- naturally has this negative connotation to it. You ever wonder why? Like, no one just like one day went, Nimrod. <laughs> like, no, it's actually biblical of why Nimrod is Nimrod E, right? Nimrod is this man who is leading. In many ways, God's people building this kingdom apart from God, which is pretty Nimrodi. It could be said that <clears throat> instead of obeying God's command to scatter and worship Him, they literally act like Nimrods and they choose to settle and worship themselves. And so they start to build this huge tower. And they begin to speak in ways that echo what God said when he said, let us make man in our own image. And they, functioning or acting like God themselves, say, come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build a city. 
Come let us glorify our own name and make a name for ourselves. It couldn't be a more explicit act of rebellion. And so it's more than just building a big tower. They are actually trying to build a life and the worship of man is at the center of that life. And so God, in His grace, loves us enough not to let us do that sometimes. And so he comes down and he declares their utter depravity by looking at them, excuse me, and saying, look, nothing's going to be impossible for them now. And he doesn't mean they're going to do awesome things. He means they're going to do awesome, horrible things. And if you look at the first verses of Genesis chapter 11, it actually says these words kind of echoing or or showing us why it's possible their idolatry is not going to be unrestrained because the whole earth had one language and the same words. They are unified in their ungodliness. And so to restrain their sin, God curses them. He curses them with different languages. You can imagine they're building, they're building, and then one day it's like, hey man, put that timber up. Like what? No one knows what's understand. They can't understand each other. And so what happens? They obey God. And they scatter. And they go build their own cultures with their own languages. And if you look and you read about how powerful language is and how language is key to identity, they start to build their own identities. Ultimately, see, God separates His people from one another because they are separated from Him. And so they have this separation still. And so as, as you see in the book of Acts, right, these tongues coming down, they're thinking about that. Wait a second. This is similar. What's going on? Put that on the shelf for a second. Second connection. This moment is actually also connected to Moses, in particular, Exodus chapter 19 and 20. If very natural as you read the book of Acts to get kind of wowed by the, the craziness of like, you know, all this noise and commotion and tongues and like, uh, that's just weird and start to kind of fail to make the connection to some past events that make these events make sense beyond just being strange. Historically, the Jews believed that the day of Pentecost was actually the same day or at least pointed back to Mount Sinai when the law was given. So same day. Well, what does that even mean? Well, after Exodus, so they they get out of Egypt in the most miraculous of ways. God brings them to the base of this mountain called Sinai. And Exodus 19 records the moment that God comes to meet them. When the presence of God comes to rest on this mountain in such a way it causes people to be scared. They're trembling. They're fearful. He comes in the presence of a full-fledged storm. And what do you think of when you think of storm? Lots of wind, lots of lightning, lots of thunder. They are scared. And I think the size of it, you can see some pictures that people have tried to recreate. And you can just see you're at the base of the mountain, not like looking at a distance of many miles, how intimidating and scary it would be. The people were full of fear because the presence of God was near. And more than that, it says that the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
And so what do you have in the book of Acts? Well, something very similar. Wind coming, right? So much wind that it's like, it's not like, it's like serious wind, commotion, and then fire. And what that is exactly, like divided tongues is like some kind of fiery flame that's resting on them. It's the presence of God. The presence of God has arrived and they would think, the last time this happened was at Mount Sinai. Now, Exodus 20 records the giving of the law. Well, what is the giving of the law? Well, God spoke the law to Moses. That's the reason why he descended. And the law was this covenant contract that God made with his people detailing the terms of this is how the relationship with you can happen, with me can happen. The law provided moral laws, it provided ceremonial laws, it provided civil laws, and all of that was to accomplish several things. Number one, reveal the holiness of God. It was also designed to distinguish God's people from all other nations. But most importantly, the law was designed to mediate relationship with God's people. A way that their sins could be atoned for temporarily so that they could have relationship and be in many ways in God's presence. That's the goal of God's story. So God made a way. It's a very loving way. We look at the law like, oh, I condemned everyone in sin. But it was also a means by which God said, here's a bridge. I want to have relationship with you. Now, even in the law, there was a separation. They would be with God in a way, but they would still be separated from Him. They couldn't come everyone into God's presence, only special guys, special times, special ways. So there was still a separation. But God had moved closer to them. So put that on the shelf. You got Babel. You got Sinai. And you got all these things happening in Acts with the tongues and the fire. And it's all coming down. And then Peter connects this moment to the prophet Joel. And as the Spirit fall on the disciples, the tongues happen and, and people are watching this and going, this is weird. It, the tongues fall on them and the, and the Spirit fills them, if you will, when they're in this room. And then it must seem like it's loud enough where they move out or something happens. They move out of the room and a crowd begins to gather and they're like, what is going on here? Some of them are confused. Some of them are amazed. Some of them start to mock. And like, these guys are drunken fools. And so Peter stands up. I think it's kind of funny what Peter says, but he says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, in verse 15. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. No one's drinking at 9 a.m., right? If it was 3 p.m., maybe, but no, it's 9 a.m. And then he says, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, a minor prophet. And everyone know what he was talking about. But if not, Peter's going to explain and he's going to proclaim what the prophecy is. Joel, if you are unfamiliar, is a minor prophet, one of 12 minor prophets. Not minor because he's short or, you know, somehow less than. He just had a very small, I believe it's three chapter prophecy. I'm sure it's one of those books you spend all of your devotions in, and so you're very familiar with it. In truth, we don't know a lot about Joel. 
We don't know when he wrote exactly. But as you read the short prophecy, you learn that he writes in the midst of a really terrible crisis. A horrible time in Israel where a huge plague of locusts, and it seems like multiple plagues of locusts, have actually decimated Israel. At one point he says, locusts come in, they wipe out crops, and then another come in and wipe out what wasn't wiped out, and another one came and wipes out what they didn't wipe out from the first one being wiped out. It's just decimated. And as a result, there's suffering. And so speaking for God, the prophet Joel declares that the plague is not just some natural disaster, it is actually the judgment of God for their sin. And he calls them to repent. And this is what he says in Joel chapter 2, before what Peter quotes in the book of Acts. It's God calling to his people. He says, yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And then he quotes what he, his own name that he gave himself in the book of Exodus. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and repent and leave a blessing behind him. Turn. Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. But we know that God's people didn't. They didn't repent. They didn't turn to the Lord. And in truth, God knew that they wouldn't. And that's why after he says this, he begins to make promises for what he calls the last days. In fact, what it says is that after he tells us, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, and there's kind of a pause, and then he says, the Lord becomes jealous for his land and wants to show pity to his people. He loves his people. He loves his land, even despite their sin. He wants to pursue them. And he wants to prove, he says, quote, that I am in the midst of Israel. And so he promises that there one day is not going to be a separation. And he talks about pouring his spirit out into the hearts of his people. Okay. How is this about the gospel? So you, you begin to go, okay, this is the day of harvest. What kind of harvest? What is different? What is new about this? What, why, should this why is this such a turning point in the history of God's people? Well, the first thing is that this is a harvest that is producing a brand new community. You got to think about this as you think about the story of God, right? It started off very big. What do I mean? All the world. You had Adam and Eve. That's all of them. The whole world. And then when they fall, it goes a little bit narrow down to a family. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who give birth to this nation, which is called Israel. Right? So it's like the world down to a nation. And through that nation, one of the tribes, Judah, comes a king. And from that king comes a descendant who is Jesus. So you go, world, nation, Jesus. And then from Jesus, what happens? Jesus, disciples, church, world. It's starting to 
grow again. That's why Jesus is that climax. And so he at one point separated his people, scattered his people, and now he is calling his people together. Acts 2 is, is the reversal of Babel, if you will, the reversal of the curse. And the Spirit falls down, fills these men with, and, and probably some women with, with tongues that they begin to speak. And what is the response to that? It says, multitudes come together. And Acts 2 makes a very big point to say that there are many nations, many different peoples gathered in this moment, hearing this commotion. And they come together and they begin to hear this group of Galileans who knew Hebrew, probably knew Aramaic, probably knew Greek. That's it. And they're hearing them in all the languages of the world. God is beginning to reunite His people. All nations, unlike Babel, are not being pushed away from each other. They're being brought into a new community and unified under one name. And the interesting thing is they're not confused. Well, they are confused about a lot of things. But what they're not confused about in terms of what's happening is what is actually being said. What's being said is that the mighty works of God are being proclaimed. So God is drawing them together under this truth. And think about this. The truth that, that Jesus is proclaiming or these men are proclaiming about Jesus is not something just to add to the towers of truth that we've been building like they did in Babel. So as people have gone and scattered into the world, we all have our little tower, that thing that's at the center of our lives, that thing that gives us the greatest joy, that thing that is so important to us, it gives us our identity, gives us our security. And for some of us, that's our culture. For some of us, that's our ethnicity. For some of us, that's our education. For some, that's wealth or achievement or relationships or family. So many different things that we build our tower. Oh, we can, we can throw Jesus on that. That's not what's happening. If it's the reversal of Babel, right? He's coming in, knocking that tower in and building a new tower. And that new tower is identity in Christ. We are bringing together different people. The reality is most of the communities in the world are founded on affinity. We look the same. We do the same things. We like the same things. That is not the same with the community that God is building. He brings together different people who may not even be friends if not for Jesus, right? Different experiences, different gifts, different preferences, different everything, but one shared thing identity in Christ. That's what brings us together. Not the fact that we dress the same. Not the fact that we like the same things. We may not like anything the same, but we love Jesus and we know we're sinners saved by grace. That is what drives us together. And this is for all nations, all cultures, all tongues to share this one identity in Christ. This is why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that Jesus broke down the dividing wall, creating himself one new man reconciling us into one body, having access through one spirit, so that what? We would no longer be strangers or aliens like in Genesis 11, but fellow citizens in God's house being built up together as God's holy temple. He's building a new community. That's the beginning of what's happening here. But it's more than that if you take Sinai off the shelf. That community isn't built on the same things that the old community was built on. This is not just another covenant like Sinai. It's a new covenant. 
God is not gathering a people around their righteous works, but around the gospel. God is gathering a people who put their trust in the work and righteousness of Jesus and not themselves because they realize as the law reveals that they aren't righteous, that our best works fall short. The mighty works that are being proclaimed here is the gospel. And what is that? You are saved by work. It's just not your own. It's Jesus' work. That you are saved by what God has done for man. That the harvest is gathering of people with this new identity is an identity that says we are saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. God has done everything. Now, what, is, what does that mean? It means this. We agree with the law that it's good. But we also agree that the law can't save us. We agree the law shows us how bad we are, but that it points us to a Savior. We agree with the law that says we know we're dead in our sins, but we are made alive in Jesus. And now, according to Scripture, by His Spirit, which comes to dwell on us, we have the law of God written in our hearts, giving us new desires. Here's what it means. As the Spirit dwells in us, it actually means we have the desire to walk, just the desire to walk, and a way to walk, and the power to walk with God in His presence. Romans chapter 8 is a beautiful picture of this. It's a picture of many things. If you read Romans chapter 8, you'll realize how much it talks about the Spirit of God and what the Spirit of God has done in us. But at the very beginning, it talks about what God has done for us. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Why is there no condemnation for those who believe in Jesus, who put their faith in Jesus? Because there's a lot of condemnation for those who put their faith in themselves. For those who try to earn their way to God, who try to prove that they're good, you will fall short. It says, for, here's why, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that He killed His Son, He crucified Jesus, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So those who are brought in this community don't come together and go, hey, we just got to like do these laws and, and do really good things. We say, no, Jesus has done everything for us and therefore now I will live for Him. I don't obey to be accepted. I am accepted, therefore I obey. And the Spirit empowers me to do that. But it doesn't terminate there. What do I mean by that? We'll bring Joel off the shelf. Right? We have this new community built. And, and in many ways, it's a new truth that's a fulfillment of the old. It's connected with the old truth, but it's a new truth. It's a new message. Repent and believe has a totally new meaning. It is also a new mission. According to Joel, this day marks the beginning of the end of days, right? The last days, Peter says. That's what Joel says. In the last days. So we are in the last days ever since Acts chapter 2. 
It says, in those last days, God's going to pour out his spirit onto all flesh, all kinds of flesh, not every single person, but sons, daughters, servants, masters, young, old, all. And he's going to draw near to God. He's going to draw near to men, I'm sorry, bridge that separation that has always been between man and himself. And he's going to do it in such a powerful way. He's not by his spirit just going to be with us. He's going to be in us. And so as you read the presence of God in the tabernacle and the presence of God in the temple and the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ himself, you think that's the presence and the power that comes to dwell inside of anyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's what is dwelling in us, if he is dwelling in us, there's no way we cannot be moved deeply. We have to be stirred. I think many of us read Acts and we go, well, that's how Christianity used to be. God's Spirit hasn't changed. And I think sometimes we're so afraid of some of the charismatic chaos that it's gone crazy with the Holy Spirit that we actually ignore the third person of the Trinity whom Jesus said, I'm leaving disciples because it's better that he comes with you. It's better that the Holy Spirit is with you than if I'm right there with you. We are closer to God, closer to Jesus in the presence of God more deeply with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And what does it say? What does Joel say is going to happen? I'm going to pour out my spirit. I'm not going to sprinkle it. I'm not going to dab it out. I'm going to pour it out and fill you up. Then what's going to happen? It says sons, daughters are going to prophecy. People see visions and dreams. And you go, visions, dreams, prophecy. That sounds really charismatic crazy. Think of it this way. As God's Spirit pours into you, what is your mind filled with and what is your mouth filled with? Day and night, as the Spirit comes to dwell in us, we are filled with thoughts of God. Day and night, as the Spirit moves us, we continually talk about Him. Dare I say, if you go throughout your day and you don't think about God, if you go about your weeks, months, and years, and you don't continually talk about God, like it's just not, like it's just not pouring out of you, right? The Spirit's pouring. It's not overflowing. It's like you're just getting people wet naturally, right? If that's not happening, we need to ask ourselves some questions about what we have believed, because there's some promises that are made. And he says, if he dwells in us, then we will dwell on him. And we will talk about him. And he will witness him. And it will be difficult not to. According to Joel, right, he says, these are the last days. And then he says, and there's a last day coming. And in between that time, which is where we're at right now, is the day of salvation. It's the day of salvation. He says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord between those last, the first last day and the last last day, anyone who calls upon, everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. Okay, you ready for your conviction grenade? Here it comes. Romans chapter 10. 
Because God has built this new community, right? And he has given you a truth, given us a truth that this community is founded on. And if it's not founded on the truth, it's works-based righteousness and it will not last. It will only create despair in us or pride. But if it's rooted in the gospel, it will create humility and power. And with that power, God has not called us. He hasn't given us a spirit so we can gather together on Sundays and feel spiritual. So you can label yourself Christian to feel good that you have some kind of fire insurance card for hell. God has given you his spirit to bring you into this community to be restored, if you will, to your identity in Christ, inspired, empowered, secured, comforted, and then sent. So what does it say? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Romans 10, Paul says this, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Then he quotes the same verse. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, get ready. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without you opening your mouth and preaching? That's my version. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? For it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The, the Spirit is poured out. And we are brought together, gathered together to be this family that's very diverse, very different with a shared identity in Christ. But then we're sent. We, we, we have something to do. We are missionaries that are empowered with the Spirit. And so when you think about like, you read Acts 2 and he goes, well, where, where's the gospel? What's well, when Peter starts talking? No, the, where's not the gospel? Because Babel, right, if you think of tongue, Babel shows us that men were separated by God. God is the one that cursed them. God is the one that separated them. God is the one that said, you are evil, I cannot be with you, and you shouldn't be with each other. Sinai comes and God says, I'm going to be with you though. I'm going to pursue you as a people, but I'm still going to be separated from you even when I'm with you. And then Joel comes and says, man, you can't even get that right. You're separated in your sin, though I've given you a means to be close to me. And then the gospel shows up in Jesus Christ, and God says, I refuse to remain separated from man. And Acts 2 shows us where that separation ends and where this new life begins. It reveals the ending of separation from one another and unity in Christ. It reveals the ending of separation from God and the beginning of faith in Christ, the ending of condemnation of self, a building of our own kingdom, and of salvation in the name of Christ as we help to build God's. And so here's my question for us as we end this, is without doubt, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's why we sit before God's people, dedicating God's kids back to Him, we say their hearts are are decisively in the hands of the Lord. As much as parents are responsible, they cannot cause their child to be saved. So salvation belongs to the Lord. But why is it if we are a people filled with God's Spirit, have the gospel as the power of salvation, 
Do we not see more people being saved? We read Acts 2 and we go, wow. Peter, you know, he just kind of says, repent, believe, and thousands are coming. Well, why? What's happening? What, why? what has changed? What is different? We go, is it, is it the harvest? Is it that there's no more harvest? Is it the fields are empty? Is anyone listening anymore? Or perhaps we're going to people who have already heard and we needed to seek the people who have not yet heard. Or maybe it's the message. Maybe we're actually sharing and proclaiming something that doesn't have power. Maybe we're going out and we think we have the Spirit of God and we're like, hey, moral advice, Christian living, 10 ways to become a better man. And we're not actually preaching the gospel. Or perhaps what we're saying doesn't match how we're living. Or maybe vice versa. Oh yeah, believe in Jesus. I believe that He alone is the one who's responsible for my salvation. His righteousness, not mine, but I'm going to do these really good works so I can make sure that I just cover all bases. But here's what I think actually it's more likely. It's that we're not witnessing to anything at all. It's that we're silent because we wrongly believe that salvation is dependent upon us and our words and our opportunities or our relationships. How many of you have said that? Well, I'd share the gospel, but you've got to have relationship first. Find that in the Bible. I'd share the gospel, but I don't know the words. There aren't too many to know. Jesus saves sinners by grace through faith. It reminded me of a story I didn't share first service of a friend of mine who I went to school with, one of my best friends in high school. He knows I'm a pastor, and I got struck one day by the fact that I had no, if I had ever told him about Jesus and my belief in Jesus. So I called him up. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. I called him up and said, hey, uh, I want to go... Uh, have a beer with you, and I'm just going to tell you about Jesus. It's like, okay. So I sat down with him, and that's all I did. I said, I can't go to sleep tonight unless I know you know about Jesus. And I preached him the gospel, shared him the gospel. And he did not believe that day. And he has not yet believed that day. But God was glorified that day. And that's all that matters. We need to open our mouths. If we have the Spirit of God, because I would argue, as John Piper said, why in the name of Pentecost, this is so John Piperist, why in the name of Pentecost are we so reticent to speak of God when the opportunity is given? And I don't know all of our reasons, but this we can be certain of. The problem is not the Holy Spirit. It is not the Spirit of God that seals our lips and makes us believe that the proclamation of Jesus' name is a private thing or a job best left to professional Christians like me. These are the last days, people. The end is near. And there remains a harvest. And that harvest isn't necessarily in Africa or in Nepal 
or in South America, the harvest may be in your own home, it may be in your own neighborhood, it may be your job, and we always like, well, I'll wait for the opportunities. You have plenty of relationships right now where you can open your mouth and trust that God's Spirit will move in you and through you and say the simple truth of the gospel. Just ask this question to everyone you meet this week. Do you know Jesus? And if they say, no, open door. If they say yes, praise God. Either way, God's glorified. These are the last days. You have the Spirit of God in you, keeping you in Christ and sending you for Christ. And the gospel is not some American, Western ideology. It is the hope of salvation for all of creation. Every person you see when you walk out this door, whatever ethnicity they are, whatever orientation they are, whatever thing is giving them identity, the gospel is for them to give them a new identity. Open your mouth and give them the hope of Jesus. It's not a message that says, well, here's a way to live to prove you're not a sinner. It's a way to believe to say, I am a sinner and God can change that. And it's not a message that should terminate on your salvation. And I would just simply ask us all this. When was the last time you told anybody about Jesus? And I don't get a free pass because I'm a pastor and I do it every Sunday. When's the last time you just told someone, well, I'd wait for the opportunity. I'll wait for the Spirit move. How about waiting for the Spirit to command, which He already has? Now go. And I'm not trying to guilt us, but I'm trying to open our minds and our eyes to go, we make lots of excuses when we ought not because the Spirit of God is in us ready. Come on, open that mouth. Let me show you what I can do. If we really believe as Restoration Road Church that we are restored in Christ, then we believe that we are called to bring restoration through Christ and to do that until we return to Him or He returns to us. And neither one of those things have happened if you're here. So let's go and be witnesses. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your mercy to us because we know, Lord, that we will never be perfect witnesses. And You're not asking us to be. You're just asking us to be faithful ones. You have done everything, Lord. You have gathered us together as Your people. You have given us the most amazing truth. A truth that we ought believe so deeply that we are just compelled to share it. And I pray you will give us that passion. And you will remind us, Lord, that your spirit has been poured out. He has not been sprinkled out. He's not been dabbed out. He has been poured out into our hearts. And if he is there, he is stirring us. He is moving us. And he is compelling us. So by your spirit, help us, Father, to be witnesses for you and your son, Jesus Christ. Give us deep belief in the gospel and deep awareness that the end is near and that you have called us to be your witnesses today. Today is the day of salvation, Lord, and I pray you will wow us with what you can do. It's in the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. As we come forward this morning for communion, I want to remind us we can get stuck in routines. And so this is a table of identity. It's a table to come and say, you know what? If you are a Christian, if you have confessed belief in Jesus Christ, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are a Christian. 
If you are a Christian, then you are coming forward and saying, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. You are identifying with Jesus, but you're also claiming responsibility for the mission he has sent you on. He did not just save you for yourself. He saved you for himself. And he has said, go and make disciples. So as we do this, you come together and you see other people do this because this is the community God has given us to do it with. And we're all claiming the same truth. We're all saying we are sinners saved by grace. We're not saying, hey, I'm clean, you're not. We're all saying we're dirty and Jesus is clean. I'm imperfect, Jesus is perfect. And that's what we have to share. So go share it. It's like signing up for war, right? When you're walking the line, the World War II, like, okay, I'm in. Like, you are coming up saying, I, I agree. I'm going out to the front lines. And they start when you walk out this door. Be witnesses. And if you don't know Jesus, I pray you'll come and talk with me. And I would love to introduce you to him. I'd love to pray with you. But let's stand and sing to our Lord and Savior.